Ready? Born ready. Welcome back. It's another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At? I'm your host, Saba Long. I think we missed a week, but we're back at it. And of course, so much has happened. So let's get you up to speed. Why don't we? And then, of course, we have to start with the topic of the year, the topic of the decade, perhaps in Atlanta politics, none other than Cop City also known as the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. So a couple things have happened over the past mm, 10 days or so. Um, One is that a big sticking point about building a new facility is that the city had consistently said that the location of the South River Forest site was really the only option, that there wasn't another location the city could consider. But an open records request showed that was not quite true. And in 2020, the city had actually identified a 6.7 acre site, so just under seven acres, in Greenbrier that would have worked. And I'm going to quote a part of what is said in the email that showed up in the open records request. And I quote, in summary, the current proposal is a reasonable solution for APD, that's the Atlanta Police Department. The location can also provide additional training space for AFRD, which is the Atlanta Fire and Rescue Department. In the the email, they said they could have moved into the facility within a year or less. Again, this was in 2020. Can you just imagine if they had just taken that location All of the drama that we're seeing and dealing with today would have never happened, man. So also in other Cop City news, I'm just gonna kind of run through a sequence of events starting with September 15th. So that's when Senator Raphael Warnock sends a letter to the mayor, Andre Dickens, and he asked for a response by September 25th, which is a Monday, we're taping on a Monday, which meant the day after for, for the podcast is going to air Tuesday, which means this was due the day before yesterday. Uh, In the letter, and I quote, he says, I am closely monitoring the litigation positions that the city has taken in light of our shared commitment to ensuring the ability of voters to make their voices heard in their government. I urge the city to err on the side of giving people the ability to express their views including by establishing clear and transparent deadlines regarding timelines and requirements and by using any discretion available to the city under the law to accept and count all lawfully collected signatures. In this letter, he goes on to identify and list eight questions that he wanted the city to address about the signature verification process. So then uh, on September 16th, the AJC published an op- a podcast, um, their political podcast, 
And that was an interview with the mayor. So the mayor went on the AJC's podcast, exclusively talked about Cop City. On September 17th, Stacey Abrams issued a statement to the AJC, which was in reaction and response to what the mayor said on that podcast. And I quote, she says, I strongly support the right of residents to be heard, and that right should not be unfairly impinged upon. She then goes on to say, they, and I quote, the rarely used citizen referendum is designed for precisely this type of fraught issue. Regardless of one's position on the subject matter, the leadership of the city should make every effort to allow direct citizen engagement by vote. Okay, so then on September 18th, uh, which was a Monday, was a full city council meeting. At that meeting, council member Liliana Bakhtiari, who we've had on the pod before, um, she, at the end of the meeting, um, submitted what is called a personal paper. And that is when a council member has their own legislation that they want the council to consider. And she, in that, she asked for the council to vote on it at that time instead of sending it to committee, which would be a two-week process. So that legislation was for the city council to scan and count or to count the signatures um, that were submitted earlier in the month. So it was 116,000 signatures. We talked on the pod before about the fact that the city took the boxes, but said they would not scan and count the signatures until they got a resolution from the 11th Circuit. This time, the city council said, okay, they passed the legislation, and they are indeed going to scan and count the signatures. And that does not mean that a referendum will happen, but it does mean that they're one step closer to a referendum. One of the big things that would have to happen is that the city council would have to um, urge the mayor's office to pull the litigation that's currently in the courts between the cop city folks and the city. And then the last thing that happened is on September 22nd, Senator Ossoff says to the AJC, where I think actually he submitted, he sent a statement to one AJC reporter and he got a lot of flack for it. He said basically that he is supportive of public safety training centers in Atlanta, but he's not opining on where it should go. So he thinks there should be a safety training center for police and fire, but he's just not saying that he thinks it should be in a particular place. So a lot of folks got upset and said it felt like he was being wishy-washy or just not taking a firm stance on the issue. So that's the latest in Cop City. And by the time our next episode rolls around, there will be a whole lot more that will have happened. Let's talk about another big thing um, that might impact Georgia. We'll talk about that, the Georgia impact a little bit later, but it is the UAW strike. If you have not heard about this, the United Auto Workers are on strike. We talked about this maybe two or three episodes ago. So why don't we listen to the head of the UAW, Sean Fain, as he announced the strike. 
Morning, UAW family. I'm going to be brief because time's of the essence. For the past 24 hours, we've been actively bargaining with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. For the first time in our union's history, we had all three companies bargaining right here at the Solidarity House, leading into the final hours of our strike deadline. We've been working hard trying to reach a deal for economic and social justice for our members. We have been firm. We are committed to winning an agreement with the big three that reflects the incredible sacrifice and contributions UAW members have made to these companies. We've been open. The companies, the members, and the public know that what we've been fighting for. And we've been clear. Midnight on the evening of September 14th is a deadline. UAW family, that deadline is nearly here. Tonight, for the first time in our history, we will strike all three of the big three at once. We are using a new strategy, the stand-up strike. We will call on select facilities, locals, or units to stand up and go on strike. Tonight, we call on three units to stand up and go on strike at midnight if we do not reach a tentative agreement in the next two hours. We're calling on GM, Wentzville Assembly, Local 2250 in Region 4 to stand up and strike. We're calling on Stellantis, Toledo Assembly Complex, Local 12 in Region 2B to stand up and strike. And we're calling on Ford, Michigan Assembly Plant, Final Assembly and Paint Only, Local 900 in Region 1A to stand up and strike. These three units are being called to stand up and walk out on strike at midnight tonight. The locals that are not yet called to join the stand up strike will continue working under an expired agreement. No contract extensions. Though the contract is expired. So, what is at stake? So, Ford, GM, and Stellantis are the three, those are the big three of the auto companies. They are in the middle of structuring their electric vehicle batteries in North and South America. And one of the big issues is that the likelihood that these EV um, plants are not going to be a union are pretty high. So that's really what is a big part of this is that the Biden administration has gotten a lot of heat that these new EV plants are actually going uh, in red states. So Kentucky, for example, possibly Georgia. And Georgia, like Kentucky, is a right to work state. So you've got that happening. And then you also have them pushing for higher wages for their union workers. So why don't we listen to Mary Barra, who is the head of General Motors. She's also the highest paid CEO of the big three. Take a listen. 
is demanding asking for a 40% wage increase over four years. They're asking for that in part because they say CEOs like yourself uh, leading the big three are making those kind of pay increases over the course of the last four years. You've seen a 34% pay increase in your salary. You make almost $30 million. Why should your workers not get the same type of pay increases that you're getting leading the company? Well, if you look at uh, compensation, my compensation, 92% of it is based on performance of the company. I think one of the strong aspects of the way our compensation for our represented employees is designed is not only do, are we putting a 20% increase on the table, we have profit sharing. So when the company does well, everyone does well. And for the last several years, that's resulted in record profit sharing for our represented employees. And I think you have to look at the whole uh, compensation package, not only 20% increase in gross wage, but also uh, the profit sharing aspect of it, world-class health care, and there's several other features. So we think we have a very competitive offer on the table, and that's why we want to get back there and get this done. But if you're getting a 34% pay increase over four years and you're offering 20% to employees right now, do you think that's fair? Well, I think when you look at the overall the overall structure and, and the fact that 92% is based on performance and you look at uh, what we've been doing of sharing in the profitability when the company does well, I think uh, we've got a very compelling offer on the table. And that's the focus I have right now. Yeah. So while they may believe that they've got a compelling offer on the table, um, the UAW has actually expanded the strike. So they originally did three locations. They have expanded to additional locations. And here's what Sean Fain, again, the head of the UAW said um, originally, and I quote, the companies and the media want to use fear tactics about how we're going to wreck the economy. We're not going to wreck the economy. The truth is we are going to wreck the billionaire economy. Working people are not afraid. You know who is afraid? The corporate media is afraid. The White House is afraid. The companies are afraid. And I mentioned before on the podcast that Sean Fain has not endorsed Biden for a second term, even though other major labor leaders have. And so um, he has actually publicly warned that Trump's uh, denunciation of the elect electronic vehicle transition could be a win for UAW union workers. And then on Friday of last week, he announced, again, when he announced the additional strikes, he offered for President Biden to join the workers on the picket line. And I think part of this was a tactic to get the White House to act, but then also to maybe perhaps draw a line in the sand uh, as they try to determine, UAW tries to determine who they will endorse in the presidential election. Well, Biden said yes. So he will be the first sitting president to join a picket line. And that's supposed to take place, I believe, Tuesday. So the day this comes out. Uh, really remarkable if he indeed does it. Um, and we'll see kind of, you know, to what extent this will get the big three to maybe acquiesce um, and perhaps get closer to getting a deal in place. By the way, Trump is also planning to join, we're not, not necessarily join the picket line, but he is going, I believe, to one of the locations. And so who knows what he'll do, but 
uh, he is a media master, so I'm sure he'll do something that gets himself in the news. When they say the president has to go on the picket line, <laughs> does that like help the cause? Or like, is there gonna be some legislation? Like, what, what's gonna happen? No, it's just to show solidarity with the um, employees who are picketing. So it sends a message to Congress if they in, intend to pass any legislation. I don't think they will. Um, it sends a message to the big three that the White House is backing the union um, workers, and so you know there was some talk about. Biden perhaps doing like what he did in the winter with the train. I remember the train operators who yeah. were going to picket, and then the White House pushed Congress to pass legislation. So there's some concern that they might do that again. Um, but I think the idea here is to really show that Democrats and the White House are with the unionized workers. Okay. We'll see. Yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, like I said, it's the first time a sitting president has joined the picket line for any union. So it's definitely a big deal. And I, I don't think the White House, when they were passing the Inflation Reduction Act last year, I don't think they necessarily realized the impact of the push for electric vehicles, um, how that would impact union workers. Because... It, it gives an opening to the big three to use, to put these plants in non-union friendly uh, states. So it's kind of a, I'm sure they didn't think about that or didn't realize that could happen, um, but it's one of those odd things where you're helping the environment by hurting the union at the same time. Another big White House thing, we don't, we all talked about this a lot on the pod, but it's definitely worth talking about um, because Republicans do such a good job talking about this and Democrats kind of consistently fail. And that is the border crisis, the migrant crisis. So Republican governors have been sending migrants to Democratic sanctuary cities across the country, um, particularly Chicago has taken in about 13,500 migrants. They spent at least $250 million in New York City. There's more than 100,000 migrants who have been placed in New York. Um, in Chicago, the migrants, according to the New York Times, have been placed in police stations and at the airport. And it has caused a lot of public um, pushback, particularly from Black residents of Chicago, who see that the city of Chicago has spent $250 million on immigrants but they don't see that level of investment in Black communities. And then in C on CBS, um, they noted that the Biden administration has set aside $770 million for New York, Chicago, Denver, Boston, and other cities. Uh, and this is uh, money through FEMA for programs that um, support the migrant crisis. And then Congress, or the administration has asked Congress to authorize an additional $600 million in funds. Now, a couple things are happening at the same time with this. So you have asylum seekers who are coming into America, but because of the way the American law is written, they are legally not allowed to request a work permit until they have been in the country for 180 days. 
So former New York City mayor and former presidential candidate, Mike Bloomberg, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, and he says this, and I quote, think about it. We have a system that essentially allows an unlimited number of people to cross our borders, forbids them to work, offers them free housing, and grants them seven years of residency before ruling on whether they can legally stay. It would be hard to devise a more backward and self-defeating system. So last year, the Biden administration deported about 15,000 migrants from Haiti. In 2022, more than 500,000 migrants came to the southern border from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, the wait times for a hearing is now averaging about five years, including for migrants seeking asylum or other emergency humanitarian relief. At the same time, the average caseload for immigration judges has grown. So you have some judges who have as many as 5,000 pending cases on their docket. So crazy. And then again, from the Council on Foreign Relations, the United States has welcomed fewer than 26,000 refugees in fiscal year 2022, or only 20% of the actual 125,000 available spots reserved by the Biden administration. What a mess. So, yeah. I, of course, this is going to be a topic for 2024. Again, I don't think Democrats have come up with a coherent, reasonable response to this. There's only one response to this. <laughs> and that is? Reparations. Like, you clearly have the money. You know, and you're just giving, like, at this point, at this point, it's not an economics thing, right? And even that poll that we talked about last time, it wasn't even an economics thing. It was just a I don't like it, <laughs> but the money is here, you know, and um, the Homeland Security, they just granted over like what, 400,000 Venezuelans temporary work. Yes. It's like over half. And that was in response to this. That's a lot of people, you know, and, and just for a section of people. So you can't continue to tell your biggest constituency that you have nothing for them. And then these people are coming in and they're not even able to vote. And when they do vote, they vote Republican. So it's, uh, at this point, it's a slap in the face. And then even in cities like Chicago and New York, you have black people there like starving, hungry. And it's like, wow, we had no money until these people just got here. You know, non-citizens, you know, so... You know, where's the American pride? Well, I think that's what some of the folks in Chicago had to say is, oh, you've got money all of a sudden. Now, granted, some of this is money that these cities are going to be reimbursed for by the federal government. But, I mean, again, you're talking a significant amount of money, right? Like I mentioned, $770 million the Biden administration has already set aside. And they're asking Congress for an additional $600 million. Like you have people and, who are like working and poor, living in extended yes. stay homes, getting evicted, barely can live. And if you told those people, hey, 
we'll give you seven years of just free housing. Forget the check. Just give me seven years of free housing. <laughs> you know, what could somebody do with that? You know? Uh, so, yeah, this is kind of sad. So, I yeah. don't see how the Which Democrats... Which is why I'm bringing it up, because I think it's a real uh, weak spot for Democrats. No, it's the it's the biggest weak spot. Like, it's it's not only the biggest weak spot. When I hear rumblings about, like, just voting, it's the biggest reason why black people will vote for Trump. Like, I've heard it on the other side on these like YouTube channels, podcasts, and they don't mm-hmm. like anything that's going on. But what they always say is, well, Trump did get those immigrants out of here. And if you're in New York and you're trying to like, you know, get, get it together, that's a lot of $600 million in New York. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Well, shoot anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, if you remember originally, when Biden was elected, one of the things he gave uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was handling or dealing with the southern border. And I don't know kind of where things stand on that, like if that's still one of her key projects or not. But, you know, it's just bizarre because you've got where the United States is not necessarily using all the spots for their allotted number of spots they have each year for refugees. But then you also have migrants who are coming over in droves. So I don't, again, I don't know. I think, you know, if someone is coming here and they, they are clearly trying to find a better life for themselves and for their family, and the United States is where they go, right? I mean, we, we've seen story after story of migrants losing their lives trying to get to the U.S., trying to get to European countries um, because their countries are, you know, practically a death sentence. And so something has to be done about that. I don't, I don't have the answers to it, but it is it's something that requires bipartisan support for sure. And I just don't see, unfortunately, I don't see Democrats and Republicans coming up with a reasonable solution together, which means that no real solution happens. Well, if if we are, um, as some people think, uh, going down as a empire or a country, you know, we have to Mm -hmm. put our mask on first. If you're on a plane that's crashing, you put your mask on first. And we have yet to do that as America. I think that's one of the issues. This is... This has been the probably one of the biggest debates um, in the country for the past ten years or more, right? I mean, it is an American first policy anti-immigrant or anti-migrant. Is an American first policy um, counter to what we have always been as a country? I think that's that has been the fundamental debate. Yeah, I think because we don't have um, real conversations on civics and history, we we get it misconstrued um, because I think that it used to be what America was about, but because of so many generations of people being here, you know, like this is our first time seeing a new wave of quote-unquote immigrants. Like, you know, what they say, give me your tired, you're hungry, you're poor. Mm-hmm. We weren't alive during that time, right? So this feels like that time, but it's just different because we don't, at least we don't think 
we need the, that many people in the country because we barely can take care of ourselves. At that time, it felt like America was like overabundant. So it's like, hey, we have empty houses here, you know. But even in that, if we have a real conversation, the only reason that happened at that time was to counterbalance some of the freed enslaved people. Like we have a real problem with slavery in America, and it it drips into everything, you know. And if we fix that one problem, then I think we can fix all the other problems, you know. And for some reason, yeah. there's no nobody sees the correlation in that. And I think it's all there. Like that same amount of money, if you give that in reparations, because of I've seen the nature of of especially of just black people in general, man, they'll take that money and probably start programs for some of those immigrants. I read a story of a guy in California, uh ex slave in California that did that with his freedom. He opened up a school mm-hmm. for everybody. Like Right. And this is during those times, you know. So, you know, I I think there's a little um I think we do have compassion in this country. I think it's just hard to see it when it feels like there's scarcity, you know? Right. Yeah, I agree. I just wrote down like immigration episode question mark. <laughs> so maybe yeah, we, we should, should definitely have one. Uh, pull, I know, an immigration attorney and I don't know, maybe someone else. On because to talk the other about thing it. is, too, we've seen them deport other <laughs> immigrants. So it's like, are you only yeah like why do they deport so many haitians like i'm not clear on on why that happened but we just gave about half a million venezuelans temporary work visas we could have gave that to those fifteen thousand haitians so you know it's just a little little weird but it's not Mm -hmm. yeah indeed all right we'll put a pin in it and maybe work on an episode about this just to dig a little deeper. All right. Uh, this is a funny next topic. I don't usually like to talk about politicians' sex lives because uh, I don't really think it's any of our business as long as it's not an animal or a child <laughs> um, or a dead person. Uh, but on the Republican presidential campaign trail, everyone is married except for one person, and that is South Carolina Senator. Tim Scott. So lately, all of a sudden, he's been telling the media that he has a special someone. Take a listen to what he said. For joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. And I'm going to start this off before I get into policy with a little bit of a personal question. Yes, ma'am. All right. So other than your mama... Yeah. Is there any special lady in your life? Yes. So if you haven't read about her yet, I don't, I'm not sure why not. It's one of the more asked questions recently. I do. I'm the uh, lovely Christian girl. One of the things I love about the gospel of Jesus Christ is it points us always in the right direction. Proverbs 18:22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So can we just pray together for me? So, yes, I'm very excited, very excited. That's good. Sounds like you found a good one. So important. I have. Yeah. You know, I think it's so important. As a guy who was raised in a single-parent household, mired in poverty, I understand the devastation when a family breaks up. I had to live with the consequences of a father who was not there. I made a commitment to make sure that never happened in my life. I'm so thankful 
to know a risen Savior that has helped guide my way, and I'm so thankful that he's allowed my life to intersect at the right time with the right person. And I just say, praise the living God. Amen. Yeah. Cap. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that so funny? Um, When I first watched, I just died laughing. That man got on his knees and everything. Come on. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. It's giving me um, Cory Booker vibes from what year was that? Oh, he yeah. Ran? When he popped up with, um, what's her name? <laughs> Rosario um, Dawson. Ahsoka. Yeah, Rosario Dawson. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. All of a sudden, you're running for president and you have a mystery woman. Nah, and... I, like, I like how he said, oh. You haven't heard? Nah, nobody's heard. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah, I, I don't know. I like, wish Tim Scott He could have pointed at happiness. her in the crowd if that's the case. It's like, yeah, she's right there. Like, stand right. up, honey. You know? Like, right. none of that. So, right. no, we don't know. <laughs> and then the, I think what just raises my eyebrows about it is like immediately going into scripture and then the prayer and then like ending with scripture again. Yeah. That's the, uh, that's the weirdest. It just, there's something about it that doesn't, uh, maybe, I don't know. I don't know Tim Scott personally. So maybe he's like this at all times. It, like perhaps I, I don't really think it's a big deal like that, but I'm just, yeah. I don't know that whole, that whole exchange. Cause it's like the second time that he's talked about it publicly. And it just, I don't know. It just raised my eyebrows. Like, what, what is going on over here? Yeah, they keep asking. Yeah, just just say, hey, I'm not dating anyone. And be done with it. Like, yeah, don't, don't do focus. the fake. Yeah, I'm focused don't on Don't be running. fake about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm or focused on serving you. Telling the bad The joke. American public. <laughs> that's who I'm dating. I'm married to the job. Yeah, that's, that's what I would have said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just seemed weird. Uh, in other news about another presidential candidate, uh, Steve Bannon was on his show recently, and he talked about um, a move that Republicans um, or a move that the Biden White House could take to insulate federal employees from becoming political collateral if Trump returns to the White House. So it's kind of interesting. Take a listen to this. threat against Charlie Kirk, Tucker dude in a bad wig, uh, which we'll get to uh, in a moment. But I want to start New York Times. If, if Denver could please put up the article to tell you to tell you the signal and the tell that we're winning. If you remember this thing about the deconstruction of the administrative state, about about us taking the deep state and shattering it. It is off this ability to get rid of, to basically just not, we have two angles of attack. One is this budget process to defund, defang, de-weaponize, de-woke. The other aspect is structurally actually a takeout and get rid of personnel. Remember in 16, when we won in the come from behind, we weren't ready to staff because it was us a, it was an insurgent movement, right? With Trump at the lead. We have 3000, um, designees, political appointees, Trump can make immediately 
after can designate those people immediately after we win on what is it, November 5th, is 2024, in the transition period, another thousand have to be Senate confirmed. There are teams right now led by Paul Dans and the Russ Votes got part, Paul Dans over Heritage, working on right now, not just the policies, but the personnel. And we've had these guys on before. And this kind of comes off one of Cash's theories of the case here, which is quite powerful. The White House yesterday is trying to get ahead of this. And I'm going to get, I'm going to start with Cash, but here's the reason. So one of the big things that Trump ran on was about draining the swamp and career, you know, bureaucrats. And if I mean, he's making clear that if he wins again, there is a cadre of Republican aligned organizations like the Heritage Foundation and others who are doing everything they can to help him figure out how to fire federal employees as soon as he takes office. And so to counter that, the Biden White House is trying to figure out a way to insulate these employees who are typically not bogged down in the politics of things. These are more policy, you know, bureaucrats, not political appointees. Uh, but they're trying to figure out a way to shape the White House and shape D.C. Uh, in a way that favors them, them being the Republicans and Trump, should he win. So if you're a federal employee listening to that, that's got to raise your eyebrows. Oh, it's already here. Party pooper and party starters. So... I've got two party poopers this week, uh, one from each party. So one is New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, who is yet again, he was indicted on bribery charges and he has been accused, again, this is by the DOJ, the Federal Department of Justice. Uh, he's been accused of using his position as head of the Foreign Relations Committee to help help the country of Egypt. And there have been calls for his resignation, including the governor of New Jersey, who is a Republic, who's a Democrat. Um, so it's not, I don't think Republicans have really said a whole lot, but Democrats have certainly come in strong. Um, because of the indictment and investigation, he has had to step down as head of the Foreign Relations Committee, but he is adamant about not resigning his position. One of the things they found in investigation uh, into Senator Menendez, this is also, it's him and his wife, it's not just him being indicted, um, is that in their home, they found hundreds of thousands, thousands of dollars in cash, and they found a few gold bars. And so apparently when he came back from one of his trips to Egypt, he Googled, assuming he received gold bars there, he Googled how much is a gold bar worth. Uh, that was one of the things that they found in their investigation. So if the man is guilty, he should most certainly be removed from the Senate uh, and tried and charged, uh, which I think is, I don't know what technical, technically what charge is that? It's, I don't know if it's treason, but it's, it's something it's pretty some severe. It's still some bribery in there. It's a bribery charge. Yeah, but it's, I think it's got to be more than bribery because you're like impacting foreign policy. That could be, 
that could have gone against America. Like you're putting another country's desires over American desires. So I don't know to what extent that, you know, if I counts was him, as treason or not. If I was him, I'd say, get me after you get Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, get me if you get um, Ivanka and her yeah. husband. What's his name? Yeah, Jared. Yeah. Yeah. Like they got two billion from the Saudis. I got, I got a few hundred thousand. Or what is Hunter but, uh, doing? So yeah, don't right <laughs> or Hunter. Me. Yeah, I mean, but goodness gracious, I mean, like what the like this is where we are. It's a mess. Yeah, but I think um, we all kind of know. You know, I, I really feel though. As soon as we, you're right. When we do find out though, they need to be prosecuted. They have to oh, you know, face some consequences, sure. and then people will hopefully stop. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you really want to drain the swamp, that's the swamp that I want to see drained. That kind of stuff right there. Um, and another party pooper. This is a hot mess. Uh, Republicans who are having yet another public fight with each other about whether or not to fund the government. And this is in part a fight between Republican Congressman Matt Gates and the Speaker of the House. What a mess. Uh, take a listen to a snippet of this interview between Matt Gates and Maria Bartiromo. Before that subpoena is sent, you tell me. We would, we would not know any anything that we know about the Biden family. 176 suspicious activity reports, 20 shell companies set up while he was vice president, the whistleblower testimony. We would not know any of this if not for those committees that he set up exposing all of this. We just right, heard from we Merrick Garland last it. week. But you, you have to follow that to its natural conclusion. It's not enough to expose facts that get people angry and animated. You then have to follow those facts to a conclusion and to accountability. You see, that's what Republicans are bad at. We're great at having the hearings and putting on the performances, but if you're still gonna underwrite Biden's debt, which is what Kevin McCarthy did joining with Democrats on the debt limit deal, and if you're gonna join up with Democrats to see, still fund his are government, you? Merrick Garland will sit there and he'll answer my tough questions and he'll smirk at me or he'll obfuscate. And then guess what? He goes back to the Justice Department and the coffers are full with money from the American taxpayer that gets turned against the brave patriots in this country. You know, what about the January? January 6th tapes. Are you Kevin not, promised he was going to release those. Any, I'm still yeah. waiting. Well, the January 6th tapes are available to anybody who wants to see them. He gave them and allowed Tucker Carlson and his true. team to see them. Carlson, yeah, it you is true. In, no, Maria, they are not available to anyone who wants to see them. That is a that is a factual misstatement. They have been curated for some people in the media and some defense attorneys, but any American cannot you, see any of the January 6th tapes. Are that you is a not false statement. right now indirectly working with Democrats because you are going to allow Chuck Schumer to come up with a continuing resolution next week to fund the government. That's what your actions are doing. That's why some people feel this is a personal vendetta you have against the speaker. No, my vendetta is against a Washington system that allows corruption to put the interests of lobbyists and PACs above the interests of the American people. Kevin McCarthy facilitates that system, and I do deeply resent that. But I'm not working with Chuck Schumer or any other Democrat. I am the one working with House conservatives You're to require single-subject spending bills. No, no, no. You guys criticize me for forcing single <laughs> So that was Matt Gates and Maria Bartiromo, who is a strong MAGA Republican on Fox News. Uh, and they were having a very heated back and forth about this. And people are upset. Uh, some Republicans are upset that 
Matt Gates is not playing ball yet again with the Speaker of the House. So Gates wants to instead fund the government department by department. And in this interview, he specifically called out passing funding bills for departments like defense. And then ex he explicitly said, we can let the Department of Labor or Education wait for funding. And if that indeed happens, that means those departments would be, those employees would be furloughed uh, and the departments would, you know, really shrink to like most essential things they have to do. It's going to be a mess. There's a big question of if they'll um, be able to pass a spending bill in time. If not, then the government will shut down. Again, that means federal employees across uh, the country are going to be furloughed. They'll be working without pay. Uh, and just imagine what that means if you, as a, uh, a regular person working hard in America, are going to work, but you're not getting a check, right? Or you're not even going to work because there's they're just eliminating what you do uh, for the time being. So some Congress members, here's an interesting thing about when the government shut down, shuts down. You know who does not lose a single paycheck? The elected officials. I must say the Congress. <laughs> Congress, the Senate, their checks don't their checks don't get put on hold. They get paid no matter what. But their employees, now they'll be, they won't have a check. So some congressmen have, um, I think mostly Democrats, maybe Republicans have as well, I'm not sure, but they have preemptively kind of like paid in advance or have, and then I think a couple of folks are doing kind of like interest-free loans. So in the event there is a shutdown, those employees will be able to draw loans and then return that money once they get their back pay. But uh, it's like, why? why? No, nah, that's avoidable. a setup. That's not like that afterpay, uh, Clark. <laughs> like, nah, <laughs> it's afterpay, but it's a it's a legit one because again, these are these are for federal workers. If you got so enough to do gonna, all that, they're not going to stiff them. Just cut my check regular, and y'all do the paperwork to recoup y'all's money. You know, because now you don't have me on the hook to fill out paperwork to pay back on. Nah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's going to be a mess if it indeed happens. Uh, and again, it's like, it, it's avoidable. And honestly, who should not be getting paid are the elected officials during a shutdown. This should really be the inverse, where the staff still get paid, but the elected officials don't. So definitely why there are the party poopers on this. Uh, so on to the party starter. Now, I don't think I've ever mentioned this person's name on the pod, uh, but I got to give them a shout out because they did something that's worth talking about. And that is Taylor Swift. So for all the Swifties, she posted on social media for National Voter Registration Day and her posts encouraging people to register to vote or check their voter registration status turned into more than 35,000 U.S. voter registrations. Like that is, that is a big deal. That is half of Mercedes-Benz Stadium, if that were filled up. 
just to give you context of how many people that is. So about how many people show up to a Falcons game? Just kidding. (laughs) So um, I am glad to see um, a celebrity using their clout for something that helps democracy. That's a great, 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 great. So kudos to you, Taylor Swift, a party starter. Yeah, I saw that. That was that was crazy. Right? Yeah, big deal. All right, y'all. That is today's show. We are going to work on an immigration episode, and then next week we're going to talk about the Atlanta Public School Board election. If you live in Atlanta, there is an election this year. Five of the nine Atlanta school board seats are up. And I want to make sure that you've got what you need to go vote. If you haven't already, check your voter registration status ASAP. And if you're not registered to vote, get registered. All right, y'all, that is today's pod. As always, thank you for tuning in to Where the Party At. 